So I've developed a bit of a strange habit and for those of you that have kind of hung out with us for a while, that's probably not a surprise to you. But you know, there's not much that you can watch on TV and feel okay about it, really. And, and so I've, most of what I watch now is on YouTube. And some ways, somehow, I have gotten locked in on watching car wrecks on YouTube. I don't really know how it happened. I don't know how I ended up here. But a lot of the time in the afternoon, I spend my time watching cars. You, you know, you always drive by and you always want to look and you always want to know what happened when you see those car wrecks on the interstate or, or, or whatever, or at the intersection. If you go on YouTube, you can see it. You can watch the whole thing, start to finish. You can see it coming. You can see how it happened. You can see the end result. You can kind of relive the accidents time and again. And it's a weird thing. You kind of get addicted to it. You kind of get used to it. You kind of want to keep watching it. It's, it's kind of a strange sensation. And, and the thing about watching enough of these car accidents is you become pretty good at predicting when there's going to be an accident, right? You become good at establishing kind of patterns that are really common that lead to these wrecks and mistakes that kind of lead to the wrecks. And so you're watching it and you're, you're really seeing these quick highlight uh, reels in these, in these videos. And you'll see a car and it swings out around and it doesn't see the car that's ahead and you know what's about to happen. It's about to merge over and it's gonna get nasty really quick. And you find yourself just wanting to shout at the TV like red light, red light, red light, or hey, whoa, 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 car coming, car coming, coming, car coming, right? But of course they can't hear you and there's nothing that you can do. And the injuries come and the pain comes and the metal twists and the glass breaks and the crash happens. And really, that's been pretty common over the last 16 years I've been in ministry. On more than one occasion, I've, I've sat with parents or I've sat with spouses, I've sat with friends, I've sat with, with spiritual influencers across the table from, from other people in their lives. And they could sit there and they could see that someone was headed down a path of self-destruction. They could see that someone was headed for a crash and they would ask me, plead with them, plead with my son, plead with my daughter, plead with my husband, plead with my friend. Let's sound the alarm that the red light is coming and the crash is certain and inevitable. And it seems like as often as you yell, as often as you shout, as often as you plead, that we're content to drive straight through the intersection to our own demise. And that's really what we see in the story of David, isn't it? You're, you're reading first, 2 Samuel chapter 11, and you can read right out of the gate, verse one, David is not where the other kings are. It is the time in which everybody goes off to war, but David's here, and he's in the comforts of his palace, and he's sunbathing, and you immediately know, uh-oh, whoa, David, 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 we're not where we ought to be. David, things are not as they're supposed to be. And you can see as he goes and he looks over the balcony and there bathing is the beautiful Bathsheba and it acknowledges as much and you're, you're sounding the alarm, David, 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 I've read this story before. David, I've seen these highlights. I know where it's headed. David, stop, stop. And before the chapter is over, there is carnage and broken glass and broken lives everywhere. And you can think about the friends that you have 
And you can think about maybe your previous marriage or you can think about the rebellion of your children or you, you can think of a hundred different scenarios. Maybe you can think about your own autobiography and you sit and you realize that when we are headed toward self-destruction, we have these blinders on our eyes that prevent us from being able to see what is actually the truth. And we realize like David that we have great capacity to rebel against God. Great capacity to do that, which many times we would think would have been impossible in a previous life. So what do we do with these self-destructions? What do we do with a self-destruction like David? David is God's elect. David, the Bible says in Psalm 89, is called God's very own son. This is a man who is full of the Holy Spirit. This is a man that is after God's heart. This is a man that has been anointed and chosen by God himself. And here he is self-destructing and rebelling against God. And what about you? You're a child of the king. If you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Christ, the spirit lives in you. You know Christ. You have been saved by Christ. You have experienced the mercy of Christ. What do we do with your life when you self-destruct? I think some big questions come up. Some big questions when we see the self-destruction of a man like David, when we see the self-destruction of other Christians in our life, other people that have been spiritual influencers for us, if we ourselves begin to walk down this path of self-destruction, some big questions begin to pop up. I wanna look at three of those questions that I think we see here this morning in the life of David. And the first question that I want us to ask is the, the simple and most obvious, how does a Christian self-destruct? How does a child of God self-destruct when they are filled supposedly with trust in God, confidence in God, passion for God, love for God, and inside them the very spirit of God, which was the case with David and is certainly the case of all of us who are now new covenant believers. Where we are now, David is nine months after the events have really taken place. And it is on the moment in which his son with Bathsheba is to be born. And David has done what people do. David has moved on with his life. It's natural, isn't it? You go through a hard time, you go through and you, you do something that you wish you had never done. You do something that you wish a thousand times over again, maybe that, that you could undo, but what can you do? And so you just do what we do. You move on with life. That what we like to do as human beings is we like to close the door to the junk closet of our lives, right? I bet all of you have a junk closet at your house. You know, you can, you can smile all you want to, but I know the truth. There's a place somewhere where your old VHS tapes live. And our lives are that way. And so we like to force close that door to the closet where the skeletons hang. We like to pretend like it isn't there. We like to pretend like it doesn't matter. We like to pretend like it has no impact. But there, that closet in the corner of our house is haunting our lives. And that's certainly what David has done. And so God does with David what he does with us. God sends a preacher to David. God sends a preacher by the name of Nathan to speak a message to David, to confront him, to essentially go and rip the door to his junk closet off the hinges so that David will have to stare at the skeletons that are left hanging there. So that David will have to do that. 
And, and we see when he rips this closet off in the message that Nathan has for David, we see the path, what, what takes place in the heart so that we live what leads to a self-destructing life. The first thing I want you to note, ask yourself is why is it that Nathan has to tell a parable? Why is it that Nathan comes and he tells a parable? He comes and in verse one, he says, there were two men, one rich, one poor. There's a, a parable. Why doesn't he just come in and say, David, you've sinned in the eyes of the Lord. You've caused great evil to God. You've, had, you've committed adultery with Bathsheba. You've killed Uriah. You've lied to your messengers. You've scarred Joab. David, you've sinned. Now repent. Well, the picture's clear. It's because David is oblivious to how serious his sin really is. David doesn't see it. That's the first symptom of a self-destructing heart is the self-destructing heart does not see how bad it really is. A self-destructing heart does not see how serious the situation actually is. The self-destructing heart is content with self-placed blinders so much so that it is oblivious to its own sin. Just think of how oblivious David was. I think the, the writer is trying to give us kind of insight into just exactly how oblivious David is to the scope and the significance of his own, son, of his own sin. There in verse three, it says, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. And it used to eat morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms and it was like a daughter to him. Now, why do I circle the word daughter there? The word daughter, if you were to transliterate the, the Hebrew is the word bot. It's pronounced bot, but it's spelled bath. If we were to pronounce it in English, it would be spelled bath, but in, in, uh, in, in Hebrew, it would be pronounced bot. And so it says that this little ewe lamb, it's got this really cute little picture, right? And, and you kind of have this picture of, of these old crusty shepherds. And now he's like rocking his little ewe lamb and singing to his little ewe lamb and having a happy, merry life with his little ewe lamb. But it's his, he says it's his, it's his bot. Now, why is that significant? Who did David commit adultery with? Do you remember? Bat Shabbat. In other words, Bathsheba as we know. Do you see this connection here? Do you see the word play that's taking place? That in other words, she's the daughter of Sheba. That's what her name was. That's what she went by, the daughter of Sheba. Her dad would have said, that's my little bot. That's my, that's my little girl. That's, that's my little daughter. And so the story is clear. The story is, is powerful and poignant. Nathan is saying, you had this man who had this little lamb, this little you lamb, his, his bot. And what did you do? You killed the man's bot. You killed it. And so there's these word clues, but David is so oblivious. He doesn't pick up on any of it. He doesn't pick up on any of it. He doesn't pick up on the word play. He doesn't pick up on the fact that, that Nathan is telling him a parable. He doesn't pick up on any of it. Instead, he says, where is he? This man must pay. Where is he? This pan should die. Where is he? And he quotes self-righteously with his own moral outrage. Exodus twenty twenty one. This man will pay four times the price. He didn't see. And I wonder how many of you right now you're on a path to destruction, self-destruction, and you don't see it. 
Other people in your life are holding up signs and they're telling you stories and they're, they're, they're trying to get your attention and they're trying to shake you. It's your wife, it's your husband, it's your friends, it's your pastor. God, through over and over, is coming to you and he's trying to shake you and he's trying to say, don't you see it? But you, you, it has lost the scope and the significance of your sin. Can I tell you, if that's the case, you're on the path to self-destruction. You're on the path to self-destruction. If you have someone in your life right now who is trying to tell you the truth about you, the reason that the parable had to be told to David is because we can't see the truth from the inside out. It's so much easier to see from the outside in. You know this. You've watched as people spiraled and you've watched as people have self-destructed and you wonder how can they not see it? It's because they're from the inside out, not the outside in. And if you have someone in your life from the outside in and you know that this person cares about you and you know that this person loves you and that this person wants what's best for you and they are holding up signs warning you that the bridge is out, that the collision is coming, that the crash is inevitable, then that very well could be the kindness of God coming to you to tell you and to warn you like the prophet Nathan that you are on a path of self-destruction. And so what we see here is not only, not only is is David not see how bad it is, but we see that David can justify everything that he does. That David can justify in everything that we does. And this gets down into verse seven. We have God begins to speak through his prophet the way that he often did in the first person. So this isn't Nathan talking anymore. Nathan's lips are moving, but Nathan's vocal cords are making sound, but God is speaking directly through Nathan to David and God is speaking to him. And you can tell if we read and ask questions as to why God says what he says to David, exactly what David has been doing and what's been going on in David's heart that's led to this place. First, you'll notice that God tells David all that he's given to him. He reminds him of how good that he has been to him. Look at what it says. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and I gave you the house of Israel and of of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. And so he's saying, I've I've given you so much more. Why would God say this rhetorically through Nathan to David? Because in David's actions, as David lusted for Bathsheba, as David committed adultery with Bathsheba, what David was saying is, I need more than this. I need more than this. I know what you have given me, but it is insufficient. I am discontent. I need more. That's not all David says. Notice that over and over, he, God emphasizes that I anointed you king. I delivered you. I gave you your master's uh, house. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. He's reminding David, you are not a self-made man. You are not a self-made man. You were a disrespected shepherd boy whose own daddy didn't think you could amount to much out in the middle of the field covered in manure when I found you. I made you the king. I made you the warrior. I made you the hero of Israel. I made you everything that you are today. But David said, I deserve more than this. I deserve more than this that there was a spirit of entitlement that had come and crept into David's life as success had been attained and success had been enjoyed. And so it wasn't just, I need more, it's I deserve better. 
I deserve better. Give me more. I can justify what I'm doing because I need it, because I deserve it. And so he says, he reminds him, I have not been close-handed with you. I've been open-handed. If this were too little, I would add to you as much more. I would have given you as much as you wanted, David, if you would have just asked me. But David didn't ask, did he? Do you remember what it said in 2 Samuel eleven four? Remember how it describes David's acting upon his impulse and appetites toward Bathsheba? Look at it in verse four down here at the bottom. So David sent messengers and what? He took her and she came to him and he lay with her. And he didn't ask. David needed it. David believed he deserved it. He was entitled to it and so he took it. How much sin in our lives has been justified the exact same way, friends? How many affairs have been justified by saying, I needed more than what I was getting? I needed more attention. I needed more affection. I needed more care. I needed more concern. I needed more companionship. How many people have stolen at work because they believe that their family deserved better than what they were getting. You, you come and you see the payroll come by and you realize you are not at the top of the payroll and you think, I make more than he does. I work harder than he does and I do more than she does and, and I am more capable than they are. My family has a kid going to college and I need to put braces on my little girl. I deserve better than this. And so you said, I need it. I deserve it. I am justified in it and I will take it. Oh, what evils? What evils are you justifying in your life right now? There is no evil that the human heart cannot feel better about. You can make yourself feel good about all kinds of things that will destroy you. And because you feel good about it, doesn't mean it's good. What kind of mental gymnastics are you doing in your own life and in your own heart to make yourself feel good about the evil that you are doing? What are you telling yourself? Are you telling yourself that you need it? Are you telling yourself that you deserve it? Are you convincing yourself to go and take it? The crash is inevitable. The, in, the intersection is fast approaching. There is destruction that is coming and God is sending a preacher to hold up the sign and saying, stop, stop, don't go that way. Don't go that way. And ultimately, David David didn't care what God thought about it. That's the last symptom that you see of a heart that's self-destructing is you stop caring what God thinks. Look at what he says. It's, it's strange the way that he, he climaxes. This is the ultimate charge that's against David that's there in verse nine. He says, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? Now, I want you to see, first of all, there's a one-to-one equivalency here that to despise the word of God is to do evil in the eyes of God. That, that is to, to think differently than God on any subject, to act differently than God has commanded on any moral ground, to apply different ethics in your life than God has applied in any single way throughout his scripture is defined as not anything less than evil in the sight of God. Evil. Why is it? Why is it? 
Certainly, we know that David has, has, has broken the law. David has committed adultery. David has murdered uh, her husband. David has initiated the cover-up. I showed last week how essentially the entirety of what God has said, the entirety of the Ten Commandments have been violated in the sin spiral that's in David's life. Why is that so significant? You see, God gave the covenant, God gave the law as the framework and the expression of his relationship with his people. God gave the law, in other words, so that you would know how to relate in love and what love toward God ultimately looks like. God didn't give you the law so that you would perform well enough that you might earn God's love. God didn't give you the law so that you might work your way toward ultimately hoping that one day you might love God. God gave us the law so that we would have the proper way to express the love that he has already placed within us for himself so that we can operate in this framework in our relationship. This is the best way I know how to explain it. Several years ago, I met a guy and he had been married pretty young in his life. And he loved his wife and he cared for his wife and he was committed to his wife. And then he found out that his wife had cheated on him. And he was heartbroken and devastated as you can imagine he would be. And he goes and, and he reconciles with his wife and his wife repents of her sin. And she, she says, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not gonna do that again. This is over. This, and, and they recommit to one another. And then he discovers there was another affair. And then there's another affair. And then there's another affair. And finally, he sits down with his wife and with his pastor and he's, he's talking with her and he's pleading with her and he's trying to understand and make sense. And this is what she says to him. Oh, I do wanna be married to you. And I do love you. But I wanna have an open marriage. I want us to be able to be with as many men or as many women as we desire to have. And so, I, yes, I love you. Yes, I care about you. Yes, I wanna be married to you but I don't wanna worry about the vows. What kind of marriage is that, y'all? You see, the vows in the marriage, they aren't what earns you the love of the spouse. The, the vows in the marriage aren't what build up love from you toward your spouse. Vows are the framework and expression of the love between two people who are committed to each other to the end. They are the expression of love toward one another. And so when we are audacious enough to say, God, I know what you said about sexuality, but I'm redefining it. God, I know what you said about the honor of our government, but I'm redefining it. God, I know what you have said about how we should treat our enemies, about how we should forgive those that have wounded us, about those that have hurt us. But God, I am redefining it. God, I don't care what you think. I don't care what you've said. I'm telling you what I believe, what I feel, and what I'm going to do. You are on the bubble of self-destruction. And that's what leads, see? If you'll look at the end of verse nine, this is what comes at the end. He doesn't talk about Uriah in the beginning. He doesn't talk about Bathsheba in the beginning. He talks about David's heart in the beginning. And it climaxes at the end of verse nine. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. That is the culmination of the brokenness in his heart. This morning, this morning, I want you to be honest with your own heart 
before God who we already know can see it all, who knows every secret and every skeleton that is still dangling in your closet. What is the truth before him? What is the truth before God? Are you justifying the sins in your life? Are you ignoring the warning signs that people who love you are placing and flagging and from his word are flagging? Are you dismissing what God has said as though you have a different opinion and different thoughts than what God has had? This morning there is a preacher that is sounding the alarm to stop, 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 repent and turn to the Lord and avoid the pain that is coming. Avoid the crash that's on its way and inevitable. The second question that I want us to look at this morning is, has God's promise failed? Has God's promise failed? You remember that God had made a promise to David. God had promised David that, that, he, was going to, that he was going to establish his throne to endure forever and that upon his throne was gonna set one of his sons and that from that he was gonna be a blessing to all peoples and all nations that were going forward. God had made a covenant unique to David. But what happens to that promise when the person upon whom it rests self-destructs? In fact, the same can be said of you and me. Do you remember what Jesus said in John chapter six? I put this here on the screen. Jesus says this, all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me, but raise it up on the last day. That, that is, that all of the, the elect, all of the children that God has given to me to build up my church, that when I receive them into my fold and they know me by my grace and I fill them with my spirit, I will keep them to the end. I will not lose a single one, I will cling to them forever. So when a Christian self-destructs, when we see a, a Christian begin to collapse and to crumble, and when we in our own lives inevitably begin to collapse and crumble, what happens to that promise? What hope is there for the promise when the promise is in peril? And it must be in peril. David's own words prove that. There's a juxtaposition that I think we're supposed to pick up on in the text. And I think one of the reasons that Nathan starts with the parable is he wants David to give his own deserved sentence. He wants David to do the sentencing of himself. Because again, justice, justice is hard to see from the inside, right? I deserve grace, you deserve justice. I deserve grace, you deserve justice. I want everybody to give me some slack you deserve the fullness of the law to come down on you. And so here's David and, his, and his, he's incited with anger and with rage that a man would do something so callous as to steal a man's you lamb and feed it to somebody else. And here he is the wealthy king. And so what has David said that he deserves? Verse five said that then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves what? to die. He deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. He's actually quoting here Exodus 20, 21. He, he didn't come up with this arbitrarily. This was the, the consequence within the law. And so he says, the man that has done this, what he deserves is he deserves justice. 
What he deserves is justice. In fact, he roots the justice into what? As surely as the Lord lives. If there is a God in heaven, in other words, if there is a God who is good, if there is a God who is the Lord, who is the covenant maker with, with Israel, if there is a God who provides, if there is a God who protects, if there is a God that is the standard of what is holy and right and good, this, it cannot stand. God's goodness will not allow it. If God is alive and God is good and he allows this to stand, he is not good at all. That in, in other words, what's hanging in the balance here is not just what David has done. What's hanging in the balance is whether God is good because if God is not just, he is not good. If God, nobody would have thought David was a good king if he would have said, eh, no big deal. Don't sweat it. I'm gonna look the other way on this one. The, the, the response that we're anticipating from the king, from the judge, is that this man deserves what's coming to him. He deserves what's coming to him. What kind of God would he be if he looked at our sin, if he looked at our abuse of what he has said, our dismissal of his kindness toward us, and we went, eh, no big deal, don't sweat it. That in other words, what we're supposed to read in that parable is that God's own goodness puts the promise in peril because he cannot wink at David's sin. He cannot look the other way. God's goodness demands God's justice to come down on David. And David, a human king, a man who we have already found out is more, much further, less perfect than God is supposed to be, has already looked at the situation and said, this man deserves to die. This man deserves to die. And so we're now awaiting, how is God going to respond? The promise is in peril. The promise feels like it's unraveling. How is God going to respond? What does God do? God brings down discipline into David's life. There's actually a corresponding discipline throughout with all of the things that David did. There's a corresponding discipline from God. David brought and destroyed a house by the sword. So what is God going to do? He's gonna raise up from within his house the sword and he's going to destroy his house. God, David went and he stole another man's wife. And so what is God going to do? He says, before all of Israel, I'm gonna have one of your very own sons steal your wives and he is going to have relationships with them before all the people of Israel. There is a corresponding discipline. Now, why is God disciplining David? This is an important question. Why does God discipline you? We don't have to wonder about this. Hebrews 12 says it explicitly, that there is a reason that God disciplines us. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Why does the Lord discipline David? Because the Lord is intent on keeping his covenant with David. And Lord's keeping of his covenant with David is not going to be dependent upon David. The Lord's keeping of his covenant with David, the Lord's keeping of his covenant with us to keep us until the end is not gonna be dependent upon my performance or upon your performance, upon my morality, morality or upon your morality. The Lord, the Lord is going to work and he's going to bring it about by his own means, by his own ways. And that way is going to begin with the discipline of those of us who wonder from the Lord and dismiss and despise the world of the Lord. Why? Because he loves us. That God is going to discipline us, not to get back at us, you understand. Some of you, you had parents and they got mad and it was just the expression of their anger when they disciplined you. It, it was just a way to make themselves feel better. That is not how God disciplines. God disciplines that he might draw you back into fellowship with him. God disciplines you that you might wake up to reality. 
God disciplines you that you might see your sin and this world for what it really and actually is. It brings into my mind the prodigal son. It's a picture of God's discipline. The father, he gives the inheritance to the son. And then what does he do? He lets the son go and destroy his life. The son goes and he, he goes into the, and one day he's, he's hungry, he's penniless, he has nothing left and he's there and he's supposed to slop the pigs and he finds himself there hungering and longing for the slop of the pigs. And you see, that's what God will let his children do. God will get you to the place in which you're so low that you hunger for the slop of the pigs so that you go and you trigger in your mind what was in the mind of that son. Wasn't life better in my father's house? Wasn't life better in my father's house? Wasn't life richer in my father's house? It would be better to be a servant in my father's house than to be free here eating the slop of pigs. And so the discipline of God comes into the lives of his children because God loves them and he wants them to hunger for fellowship because there is a greater juxtaposition that is yet to come. We're supposed to say, yes, yes, because the Lord lives, the, the sinner is supposed to die because the Lord lives, justice must be exercised. But there is a formula that we find throughout scripture that wherever there is a sinner who repents, the Lord is there to welcome him back by mercy. Now look at what it says. Look at what it says. The Lord's, the Lord's anger, wait, hold on. Yes, verse five. The Lord's anger greatly kindled against this man. And he said to David, Nathan, as the day Lord lives, the man is just, this deserves to die. So that's what we're expecting. But listen to what he says in verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. There is a change. The justice of God is interrupted by the mercy of God because of his response to the repentance of the sinner. You see what God does is he chases down his children and he chases down his people and he chases down his son, sons like David and sons like me and sons like you. And he brings discipline in our lives that, that, that we might long for his house, that we might turn from our sins that we might stop before we get to the intersection that the Lord, that the Lord would receive us back by his mercy. See, God's mercy purchased our just forgiveness through the cross. That's what the cross is. If God lives and God is good, then sinners must die. So what God did is he came himself and he died. He died. And on the cross there, justice and mercy intersected so that all, all who will turn from their sins, all who will stop living by their own opinions, all who will stop justifying their own sinfulness, all who will open up their eyes to see it as it really is and to see it as bad as it honestly is and will respond in repentance. He will bring them back into the house and because God chases you down and God draws you to repentance and God restores you by his mercy, God God is able to uphold and to keep his promise to David and now to me and you that we will be in his kingdom forevermore. One final question I want us to look at this morning. Why does forgiven sin still hurt? Why does forgiven sin still hurt? I want the teenagers especially to listen up right now because there is a way of thinking that goes something like this. 
Yeah, they tell me not to do it, but they did it. They tell me not to go there, but they went there. They tell me not to live like that, but they lived like that. And they turned out fine. And they turned out okay. So yeah, I'm gonna go ahead, I'm gonna sow my wild oats and I'm gonna do the college thing, I'm gonna do the high school thing, I'm gonna do the young adult thing, I'm gonna go my own way and I know, I know, it's probably not the best way and I know, I know, there's probably a wiser way, I know, I know, but right now, right now, I just wanna have some fun and I'm gonna be like some of my role models who have went that way, who have come to the other side and now they're fine, I'm just gonna go that way. That's how you think. Can I plead with you to go and talk to some of these people? Can I plead with you to go and talk to some of these people? Because they're still haunted at night by the things they did when they were 16 years old and 17 years old and 18 years old. They're still haunted by relationships that they had when they were 21 and 22. Haunted by things that they did in the frat house in college. They're still carrying around with them the sense of shame and pain and scars that has been going forward. They brought baggage into their marriage that didn't have to be there. They brought addictions into their 30s that didn't have to be there. They brought agony into their life that didn't have to be there. They brought hardship upon their kids and upon their, their outlook on the world. They brought anxieties into their 30s and their 40s that didn't have to be there. They may look okay on the outside, but that's because we're good at looking right. They are hurting. They are hurting. One of the most common pastoral questions I get asked goes something like this. I've sought forgiveness, but I still hurt. I've confessed my sin to my wife, but she still doesn't trust me. I've confessed my sin to my children, but they still won't talk to me. I've done everything that God would have me to do and they claim to be God-loving, God-fearing people who walk with Christ, but there is still, things are not right and things are still hard. I introduced you David. David is going to be kept as the king. God is forgiven David. He says, I have removed your sins from you. I have removed them from you. You are not going to die. We know that you even think you ought to die, but you are not going to die. And then there's verse 14. Nevertheless, because why? There's no ambiguity. Because by this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. See, there's something that you need to understand that on this side of heaven, forgiveness does not mean painless. Forgiveness does not mean painless. That the removal of your sin in this life is like a man who threw a stone into the water and then went and retrieved it. He went and he removes the stone from the, from the water, but the ripples, the ripples still spreading. But we can have vertical forgiveness between us and the Lord and that does not erase all of the horizontal consequences that come into our life. That doesn't mean that you're going to be restored to the place of leadership that you used to have. And it doesn't mean that you're gonna be able to go back and get the kind of job that you once had. It doesn't mean that you're gonna be able to have everything in your marriage exactly the same as it used to be. It doesn't mean that everything between you and your adult children is gonna suddenly go back to, go back to like it never happened. No, that's, that's, that's not realistic. 
And the Bible doesn't teach it. We need to come into sin with clear-eyed view. And that is why I talk to the young people and I talk to the young married people and I talk to the college students and I plead with you that not bring this kind of hardship into your life because these things are avoidable if we will take the opinions of the Lord and make them our own opinions. If we will take the ways of the Lord and make them our own ways. What was the payment that David said the man ought to pay for the ewe lamb? fourfold, right? You took the lamb, you ought to have to pay for it again, four times over again. Again, he was quoting from Exodus chapter 20, verse 21. David took a man's son. Do you know how many of David's sons end up dying? You have the son here with Bathsheba. Then Amnon goes and he rapes his half-sister Tamar and, and Absalom kills Amnon. Then Absalom causes an insurrection. Remember the consequences that were, that God had promised as discipline to David that from within your own house, sword will bring destruction. Absalom calls, leads an insurrection against David and David's own men have to take Absalom's life. Then there was a son, Adonijah, that the Bible says David refused the discipline and was not a good father. And Adonijah tries to illegitimately claim the king, uh, claim the, the, the throne over Solomon, the one that David had anointed. And Adonijah has to be struck down. And before his death, David buries four sons, the fourfold payment for his own sin. See, David's sons, they had to pay a price. And your wife, she has to pay a price. And your kids, they pay a price. And your friends, they pay a price. And you can be right with God and still have trouble being right with the very people that you love the most. But where's the hope? Here's the hope. The sons of David had to pay a price, but it was a foreshadowing of the son of David who would pay the price. The cross is the perfect illustration for the painfulness of forgiveness. That forgiveness hurts. That mercy, mercy doesn't come to us cheap. Forgiveness, forgiveness, it doesn't come to us cheap. Forgiveness doesn't come to us without cause. The cross is the evidence of the painfulness of forgiveness. But the cross, the cross is also the proof that the pain, it doesn't last. It doesn't last. That one day, one day all of these wounds are going to fade. One day all of these tears are going to be wiped away. One day all of the agony that you've carried forward all of these years and the scarred conscience that you still bear and the, and the horizontal relationships that have been broken and repaired and mended and, and cried over and prayed for, one day all of those things are going to be united because Jesus died upon the cross, but he did not stay dead. He was resurrected three days later as the firstborn of our own resurrection. And one day we too will rise and we will know not just vertical mercy, but horizontal mercy so that in our lives, in our lives, the mess that we've made, the crashes that we've experienced, the scars that we carry forward, they will be wiped clean. They will be wiped clean. And so this morning, this morning, I wonder if God has chased you to this very moment. I wonder if God has chased you to this very moment 
God told David, I'm gonna take all of your sin and I'm gonna drag it out of the dark and I'm gonna bring it into the light so that it's before all of Israel and all of the people. And I wonder this morning if you would be so bold as to go and to drag your sin out of the dark and out of the closets and drag it into the light so that you can look at it and face it and offer it up to the Lord so that you do not compound consequences in your life the way that sin compounds in our lives, that you would come and that you would confess it to the Lord so that it would end today so that you could begin experiencing the restorative mercies of the Lord that have been purchased for us by the son of David. Let me pray to the Lord this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. We would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.